Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody. Um, the weekend's cyclone bomb was like a return to the Ice Age, which is appropriate for tonight's show. <clears throat> In our uh, pre-interview talk the other day, uh, our guest and I discovered we have a mutual friend, so we hope she's enjoying shellfish at her compound in Mexico and will enjoy the archive if she's not tuned in. Um, some of the most popular nightlight shows are when Barbara and Greg Little uh, get together and they discuss it, Atlantis and they're in their own little world for you know those uh, couple hours. But Tonight, we're going back to about the same time period, and you know, it's just as an exciting location. Uh, I'm sure most of the listeners are fascinated by Francis Lascaux Cave and all the handprints and drawings of the bison and Ice Age megafauna. Um, Caves are uh, becoming a very popular topic in the study of prehistory um, in the Meadow Rock, Meadowcroft Rock Shelter is only about 45 minutes from me and it has captured worldwide attention. It, it really is a fascinating place. Uh, and there's a terrific article you might go to get from uh, you know, your local library uh, to Tippins's, uh, the, the Glenshaw Rock Shelter, <clears throat> uh, 
and that's located near Pittsburgh. There's a great book, uh, Caves and Cultures, about Ohio's caves, rock shelters, sinkholes for, you know, that were used for about 10,000 years. So, um, so to, it's a, the Meadowcroft rock shelter is also a regional destination for a guest too. So that means she's a Yinzer. Aura Holmesy Messer is a geoarchaeologist with an interest in human adaptation to climate-induced landscape change and prehistoric resource exploitation. She has worked as a cultural resource manager for the U.S. Army Environmental Center has taught at Murray State University. She has many peer-reviewed publications, one of which is the Hunter-Gatherer's Use of Caves and Rock Shoulders in the American Mid-South. And she advised on another great doctoral thesis, a new chronology of projectile points for Western Pennsylvania during the transitional period by Christopher Thompson. Uh, She presents at conferences and has a new book entitled Experiencing Archaeology, a Laboratory Manual of Classroom Activities, Demonstrations, and Mini Labs for Introductory Archaeology. Let's say she's super smart, you know, we don't have to go into – the whole CV, you know, just take up too much time. Uh, but Indiana University of Pennsylvania is lucky to have her as a professor of anthropology, and we're glad she is our guest tonight. Hello, Laura. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for um, thinking we're not too weird to uh, be a guest. <laughs> and, yeah, you – have had um, a really interesting experience excavating Dust Cave. Can you tell us a little bit, like, where is it located? You know, like, some of the background stuff. How how'd you get involved uh, working at this location? How long were you there? And you know, just give us the background, and we'll you know we'll take it from there. Yeah, sure. Um, so Dust Cave is located in uh, kind of northwestern Alabama. Uh, it's in the Tennessee River Valley. Um, it's a it's a limestone cave. Uh, there's a lot of caves in that area, kind of dotting the bluff line of the Tennessee River. Um, it's so it's certainly not the only cave in that area, um, but it's certainly one of the most important and has become one of the most well-preserved ones that we know of in the Southeast. Um, and so it, it's really given us a, a fantastic window into, into a wide variety of topics, everything from how humans adapted to climate change through a couple key climate episodes um, coming out of the Ice Age and then the Middle Holocene. Um, it's also shed a lot of light on we have wonderful preservation of food remains, which is something that's rare at a lot of open-air sites. Uh, so the cave has is, is preserved these um, fragile plant remains and fragile um, charcoal and ash crystals. And so we've been able to say a lot about not only what 
people ate back then, but kind of how they cooked their food too, kind of a, a nice little window into you know, wow. kind of daily life. Um, it kind of makes them more human, not just what they ate, but, but how they did it. Um, it's given us a, a glimpse into uh, gender relationships and what women were doing in the past. And so it's, um, it's just a, been a great site in terms of the, the preservation potential for looking at questions that we haven't previously been able to uh, investigate um, going back that far. So um, I started there as a student. Goodness, I'm trying to remember the year I started there, um, late 90s. Um, I was in college and had kind of just discovered archaeology as a major. And um, I, I have to admit, I don't remember where I even first heard about the field school that was being held there. Um, it was run by Boyce Driscoll, who at the time was with the University of Alabama. Um, and it just sounded like this great exotic opportunity that he kind of located. You, you could only access it by boat at the time. Um, so you had to uh, get into a, a interesting swamp. Yeah, cypress trees all around and, you know, navigate through the cypress trees. And so it felt very exotic at the time. Um, and I just fell in love with it as a student. And so um, then when I graduated and went to graduate school, um, Boyce invited me back as a teaching assistant. Um, and that's kind of what got my start there. And I just became so hooked on it <laughs> that I decided to do my doctoral dissertation on it. And I guess the rest is history. <laughs> history or prehistory? Prehistory. <laughs> right. yeah. So, okay, yeah, I've read a little bit of you know, Dr. Webb's, uh, you know, William S. Webb's works. And is this area near where the uh, Tennessee Valley Authority uh, had to flood some of the valleys to um, uh, make the modern uh, lock and dam system? Yeah, in fact, that's actually how the site really was identified. Um, so the, the Tennessee Valley Authority is the federal agency who owns the land on which Death Cave sits. Um, and under the, the National Historic Preservation Act, uh, federal agencies have, uh, they're mandated to kind of monitor and protect and, and inventory cultural resources under their purview. Um, and so the, the TVA was well aware of, um, you know, continual flooding of some of these cave sites. And so they initiated a, a large-scale survey um, of all the caves along the bluff line. Um, and, you know, it was a pretty intensive survey, and you know, a lot of the caves didn't have any evidence of occupation. Um, and Dust Cave, actually, it, they had gone down many feet before they realized there was occupation. It was pretty deeply buried. Um, and so th they like to say they kind of found it at the last, <laughs> the last few trowel pools of dirt. Um, maybe a little dramatic, oh. but um, <laughs> fortunately, they they did get down far enough and, and find some of the cultural remains. Um, and so from that point on, they, they put in some test units to kind of further explore, you know, how deep were the deposits, how old were they? Um, and that's when they realized kind of what they had. And so Boyce Driscoll began a, a very large scale excavation there, you know, partnering with the University of Alabama and the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, and, and that's where the field school got started. Um, so he started holding a summer field school there each year, which is a um, 
kind of a rite of passage for all archaeology students. They, they attend these the field schools are often six weeks. Boyce's was, I believe, 12 weeks of summer in the swamp. Wow. So it was a very intensive field school, um, but it was an amazing opportunity. Um, and, yeah, so if you would have field school students there every summer um, through, I think, 2002 was our last field school. Okay. So, um, dust cave has to be a um, little a little more elevated uh, above the um, you know floodplain mm -hmm. uh since some of the other mounds had to be evaded and you know that they, they were submerged so like how far uh, from the river, uh, the Tennessee River, is it? Um, you know, like what? What would be the elevation above uh, the floodplain? Is it pretty close? Um, yeah. It, well, one thing to keep in mind is that the Tennessee River has been moving over the last ten thousand years uh, of occupation there. So, at the time it was occupied, Dust Cave actually wouldn't have been. It would have been that, I mean, it was elevated high enough to be fairly protective. Um, there are flood deposits at the bottom of the cave, um, and a lot of them have been washed out, and that kind of opened it for habitation you know, around 10,600 years ago or so. Um, and so by that point, the, the river had started to migrate a little bit away, and so um, the like if you were to stand at the cave 10,000 years ago and kind of look out from the real estate there and kind of overlooking a small creek, Cypress Creek, which today is flooded, and that's part of the swamp you boat through to get to the site. Um, but at the time, it would have been a little kind of tributary um, going into the main river. Um, and I would say um, maybe a quarter to half a mile away. And, you know, today it's a couple miles. So the river has oh, really okay. migrated. Quite a bit, yeah. So it's, you kind of have to envision the cave as it would have been a long time ago, um, much closer to the river. And, you know, the, this cave would have been really well situated. You know, it, it, archaeologists like to call these kinds of sites uh, ecotone sites, meaning they kind of straddle two different ecological zones. And so, you know, they would have had, the residents would have had easy access to to aquatic resources, floodplain resources, um, but also easy access to upland resources such as deer and squirrel and, and that kind of thing. So it was really kind of prime real estate. Um, what were the di dimensions of the opening? It sounds like it, it, it was uh, uh, from, from your doctoral thesis, it seems like it was a pretty big site or, or uh, you know, cave entrance? Um, actually, I would say it's, it's more on the small, kind of more intimate side, probably relative to some other caves that are well-known for occupations, such as, like, say, Modoc Rock Shelter in Illinois, um, or even the nearby rock shelter, um, Stanford Worley, which is, uh, I think, about less than 10 miles away. Um, it's an upland cave, and it, it's quite vast. Um, so Dust Cave would have been smaller than some of those other ones. Um, 
it's about a, a hundred square meters. So, you know, it might've been about, you know, maybe 30 by 50 feet. Um, and at the time it's, that it was first occupied, um, you know, there would have been plenty of headroom. It would have been, you know, maybe 15, 20 feet above your head. Um, wow, and, okay. and so, you know, it was large enough to do a wide range of activities, and we can certainly talk more about what those activities might have been. Um, but it, it wasn't huge by any means. Um, and so when we look at kind of like the uh, horrors and those kinds of features, um, you know, they're pretty tightly clustered because there's not a, not a ton of room. Um, and, but it was, re despite its fairly small size, it was very intensively occupied for, you know, over 7,000 years um, from the, the late Paleo-Indian period through the, the Middle Archaic. Um, and and <laughs> the director, Boyce Driscoll, used to always kind of laugh that, you know, after about 7,000 years, they'd kind of trashed themselves out <laughs> and ran out of headroom. Um, and it, it's... You know, it's very much like our modern cities. They kind of build up on top of each other, and in this case, the same way. So, you know, it built up as people occupied it over all those millennia. It built up like, you know, 15 feet or so of deposits. Um, and by, you know, roughly 4,000 BC-ish, um, you know, there would have only been maybe three, four feet of headroom. So um, they used it as long as they could. Okay, so it so with what uh, about 7000 years of uh human occupation there's all, we went from like 15 feet from floor to the ceiling to you know you couldn't even uh sit in there uh, by the time <laughs> <laughs> so all that was just yeah. A, a lot of debris. So, mm -hmm. it, and you know, when you, um, you know, send a few photos. You know, people can ch check them out on the uh, archive tomorrow. As, uh, if you want you know, to see a few samples, but when you know, you're Supervising the cavation, you know, there are these uh, like little white tags that are you know, basically going from you know the ceiling down uh, over ten feet. Mm -hmm. What what do all the uh, you know these little markers indicate? I thought that was pretty, you know, really interesting. Yeah, so those are markers of, of the different strata, what we call stratigraphic zones, so the different layers of sediment and materials that are in there. And, you know, so Dust Cave is a good example of what archaeologists call microstratigraphy. Um, and so stratigraphy is just simply the layering of sediment and soil layers. Um, and then microstratigraphy is when you have these really thin, you know, some, some of our layers are less than an inch thick, um, less than half an inch in some cases. Um, and so we use the tags to kind of denote every time we change to a new sediment layer that might be from a different time period or laid down by a different process, whether it's a flood or, 
um, kind of gravity or people burning material. Um, so th those types, you know, all of those. So if you saw a lot of them in the pictures, that's a kind of helps you visualize just how many different types of sediments are in the cave and why why that profile looks so colorful. Mm -hmm. well, and there are different colors of um, what um, mud, uh, you know, uh, some of the flooding, uh, you know, maybe some of the water dripping from the ceiling. Uh, so you, you have a variety of colors in, in there. So all the markers in, in the photos are showing like where that thin layer starts on one end of the cave and where it ends at, at the other. Yeah, much. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. You can finish your thought. <laughs> oh, I, I, I was going to say. So, it, and but but it, it it the the markers denote what caused that layer of sediment. Is is that how you know it's professionally laid out? Yeah, the, those little tags are, are kind of critical for us to correlate from, like you said, one end of the cave to the other because it's not like we – obviously it would be dangerous to just kind of take all the dirt out all at once. So, you know, we, we started kind of um, with a there, – well, there, we started with some test pits, just some one-meter by one-meter test – actually, I think they might have been two by two meters. I took that back um, – um, so they were fairly large test pits, but they were kind of scattered out. And so, you know, the the original excavators um, were trying to mark those strata, just at least in a broad sense. We had a sense of where we were chronologically. Um, it was difficult early on because you can imagine the lighting in the cave is not great. Um, so it was kind of hard to see. Um, but as we excavated over, you know, future field season. So we then added a, a trench that kind of spanned from the outside of the cave back to the back wall of the cave. So it's a very long trench. Um, and so we had that nice trench mm. going through the middle, but then we had to correlate from one side of the trench to the other. <laughs> so, you know, we were trying to tag the, the stratigraphic layers the whole way down so that we could then match them to the other side. Um, and and it, mm. it can be because in that cave, sometimes the layers, you know, only went a few feet, um, and then they just kind of petered out um, for, mm -hmm. for a variety. So it was, it was kind of difficult to, to reconstruct the stratigraphy. Um, and there were also some places in the cave where, um, like especially along the back walls, where um, you can kind of imagine as the soil, you know, kind of butts up against the back wall. It, it would tend to slump down the walls, and so, you know, material would kind of move out of its original location. Um, we had some issues. There's, a, there's actually a channel through the bedrock of the cave, and, and water actually flows through that. Um, and so during very wet seasons, and this was one of the reasons the TVA wanted to excavate the site, um, during the wet seasons, it, it was dissolving sediment and, and artifacts um, some of this really fragile plant remains and, and bone material. 
Um, and so as it would dissolve it, the, the sediments would kind of start to sink. Um, so we actually had, it's kind of weird to say, but we actually had like some faulting in the cave where places where the sediment had just kind of collapsed and um, fell down. Um, and so there were parts of the cave where it would look like you were at the same stratigraphic layer, but you would get, say, projectile points from two different time periods. And it, it would be confusing um, until you kind of realize that the soil on one side had kind of collapsed and you, you kind of had to reconstruct it. Um, it is definitely challenging. And, yeah, you have a little section of, of that in your um, hunter-gatherers uh, article on how how the water's uh, like dri dripping in from the ground above, or you know, th there's there's a source for it co coming into the cave, and it's washing out some of the artifacts. Mm -hmm. You know, you said plant materials. It, 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 it's you had such a lengthy experience there that you know you really got to see how it's small things like that that you know probably most people you know just visiting for uh you know doing a little field school for a uh you know a couple months or someone who is invited there to uh observe your work and you know, they may not think of things like that but um you bring that to our attention of just dealing with these you know like the water as part of an issue that uh, needs to be taken into consideration yeah the logistics of cave archaeology is certainly humbling <laughs> Um, you know, we would, yeah. we would struggle flooding every spring. Um, I mean, I remember mm -hmm. one year the, the water was, I mean, you, you would go into, we, we couldn't excavate because there was like four feet of water. Um, and I'm only five feet tall, so, you know, it was just my head above the water. Um, and <laughs> we would just have to wait for the water to subside until we could excavate again. And, um, you know, and that, the water would bring in wildlife. We had um, one year we all still remember it pretty vividly. Our, we had an infestation of frogs <laughs> because it was so wet that season. Um, <laughs> and it just, I, I, I can't tell you how many frogs there were. You, you couldn't walk without stepping on frogs. Um, but, you know, that's a testament to how much moisture could be in there. And it's kind of ironic because, you know, we call it dust cave. It was dry when it was discovered. But, you know, once it was opened and that you know, with the, the damming of the Tennessee River and the, the seasonal flooding as a result of the damming of the river, um, it's it's now very wet. Um, and, of course, that that wetness, like you said, was dissolving and, you know, destroying the, the very fragile plant remains, um, you know, some of the, the fragile bone remains. And, and, and we had, you know, very fragile bone remains like, very finely crafted um, bone fish hooks and needles and awls and, you know, um, bone tools. And that's something that, 
when you go back that far in time, people think, oh, stone tools, but we forget that they were making tools out of wood and bone and, you know, a wide variety of materials that just didn't preserve. Yeah, that's interesting. And you, know, you mentioned the lighting in the cave, and that's one of the reasons why I thought um, you know, it'd be a great guest to hear your experience. I, I'm sure our listeners are just absorbing all these challenges, but you know, you. You know, from from what what I read and you know the photos you sent, I, it, it's an amazing job with the thin layers of stratigraphy you know, that's detailed, and you get the larger ones. You know, it's easier to spot. You really did an excellent job of documenting so many different angles of what you encountered in there. I'm impressed. Well, the Dust Cave project, I have to give credit where credit's due. And, and, you know, Boyce Driscoll, the director of that site uh, for many, many years, you know, he always envisioned that site as a a very interdisciplinary, you know, team effort. And so he brought experts and and just everything. And so, you know, he he Mm -hmm. recognized that, to get that the data out of the cave that you know we need experts in you know bones and plant remains and stone tools and geochemistry and geology and you know all these disciplines and and that I think that's what makes archaeology so exciting and certainly what appealed to me uh, when I first started there was just seeing all these experts with knowledge in so many fields bringing it all together and kind of piecing this puzzle together. Um, component of that, um, but there, there's so many other folks who have done amazing work at the site. Okay, and you you, know, you do bring up uh, geochemistry. How is that applied to cave archaeology? Yeah, sure. So. <laughs> The geochemistry that I did at this cave, it was a little bit exploratory um, just to kind of see if it would be useful. And and I think it did turn out to be useful. Um, there's kind of a fairly long history of using chemistry in archaeology. And it's kind of based on the idea that as people, you know, go about their daily business, you know, cooking and processing animal remains and, you know, just all the other parts of life <laughs> that happen at a site, um, you know, they, they leave behind a certain chemical fingerprint, if you will. And so, um, so for example, if you're processing fish out of sight, fish are really high in calcium and strontium um, because that's a major component of bone. Um, and it's, it's well concentrated in something like fish. And so, um, you know, you can see kind of a spike in those chemical elements in the sediments. Um, and so we were kind of looking for, for stuff like that uh, at the site. And um, one of the major elements we looked at was phosphorus, and, and phosphorus has been well documented as a, a really good, because you could say, proxy for human activity. So the, the more intense people occupy a site, uh, the more activity they're doing, the more phosphorus gets left behind. And, you know, over time, that phosphorus kind of gets tied up in sediments and uh, just kind of hangs around. You know, there are, there are some elements that just 
they dissolve in water and they get flushed out of the system, but things like phosphorus really stick around. And so we were able to kind of look at the phosphorus fingerprint through time, you know, from the earliest level mm-hmm. from the late and through the, the middle archaic over those 7,000 years. And, you know, you can kind of see different times where it would spike. And, um, you know, it, it correlated to increases in, say, you know, stone tool debris and fire pits and things like that. So it, it was more kind of an exercise in um, showing the utility of it so that if, if you were lacking other kinds of material remains, you might be able to look at the chemistry um, at a site to, to figure out when it was more intensively occupied. And um, so it was fun. It was, it was neat. And I think the other thing it helped you know, I was really interested in what we call the features at the site, and these are you know, mm-hmm. things like hard um, storage pits, um, things like that. Um, and we have a huge variety at Dust Cave, um, again, because the preservation is so amazing. Um, if you look at these sediments under a microscope, you can see individual crystals of ash, you know, perfect rectangles and spheres, and I just amazing preservation and so it it gave us an opportunity to say well hey what what are these different features how were they used and so we kind of looked at the chemistry in these different horrors and whatnot you know some of them are really high in phosphorus and some are really high in strontium and and some just kind of had a vague mix of all kinds of things (laughs) Um, and so it kind of helped us piece together what they might have been used for and that was kind of a focus of my research. Okay. And, and you just mentioned hearths. If people are going to be there for, you know, a- ancient people were there for long periods of time, uh, you know, they have to leave behind food remains. So what did their diets consist of? How were they cooking? Uh, there is in, uh, just uh, inside the entrance of the cave. You know, how how did what did you discover with all these horse and what was what did their diet consist of? Yeah, so the both the horse and the the plant and the animal remains uh, really gave us a good clue. And, and, you know, it changes over time. Um, in the late Paleo-Indian, there – and this was some some really wonderful work done by a colleague of mine, uh, Renee Walker, who did her dissertation on the faunal remains at the site. You know, kind of at the time she was working, there was still kind of this pervasive mythology that, you know, all Paleo-Indian sites are big game sites, and people were just exclusively eating big game, you know, mammoth, mastodon. And, um, mm-hmm. All and right. Of course, just post-Ice Age, so – that extinction event had happened, but, you know, we still expected that there'd be a lot of, you know, white-tailed deer and, and big stuff. Um, but Renee's work showed that in the Palo-Indian, um, it was really dominated by fish uh, and waterfowl and small mammals, which, you know, really shouldn't have surprised us in, in retrospect, because remembering that that river was much closer at the time, um, it just would have been so easy to just gather these resources um, you know, be you know, very efficient. Um, but as the, the river migrates away uh, from the site just through natural migration, um, 
we see a change in what they're eating. Um, and in terms of the animal remains, it's by the archaic period, then we start to see more deer. Um, but that's still not the predominant, you know, there's still, still a lot of squirrels and, you know, turtle and rabbits and um, those kinds of species. Um, and so it's still, you know, it just doesn't fit that big game stereotype that's so pervasive. And and then um, Candace um, Hollenbach has been doing the work on the, the um, botanical remains, and her work has shown just how many plants were being used. And so this kind of shook up the myth even more, <laughs> kind of showing that, that the bulk of the diet probably was coming from plants. Um, and that's largely um, nuts, although nuts preserve better than some other plant remains. So there's probably a little bit of preservation bias there. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of nuts. And as you go through time, by the middle or you start to see so much nutshell. <laughs> Just so much nutshell. Um, and then my work with the features, um, we started to realize that some of these features seem to have been dedicated to processing uh, nuts, such as hickory nuts and walnuts and some acorn, but hickory nuts predominantly. Um, you know, we find a lot of nutting stones, a lot of um, pestles for crushing nuts. Um, the features that I was working with, the horrors that we had, um, there's a lot of nutshell in them, um, a lot of what we call fire cracked rock, which is just um, rock that cracks when it's heated. Um, to high temperatures, um, and um, a lot of the um, getting back to the chemistry, uh, these these hars were really high in strontium, which uh, we did some testing of hickory nuts and to be high in strontium too. Um, so it kind of began to piece together this picture of not just intensive plant use, but we think intensive plant processing. So it's not just that they were going there and eating nuts and gorging on hickory nuts, but I think they were processing them on a very large scale because um, we have just very large number of these features. Um, and so I kind of suspect that this was a major gathering place in the fall, um, probably particularly for women, um, processing nuts for a few weeks in the fall, you know, when they're ripening. And, um, you know, we don't know exactly how they were processing them, but we know from ethnographic accounts that, you know, Native Americans would parch them, um, you know, kind of dry them out so that they don't germinate. <laughs> um, then you can store them over the winter or you can boil them for nut oil. Um, you can make hickory nut soup out of them. I mean, there's just a, a very wide variety of things you can do um, with nuts. Um, and so it my colleagues and I have kind of interpreted the, at least the middle archaic as a pretty intense occupation, not just as kind of a camp, but as a, a kind of specialized nut processing center. Okay. So you're just talking about um, hickory nut soup and some of the other uh, you know, making oils, uh, you know, the nut oils. Um, you know, if it's not all consumed at that meal, you have to have a place to put it. And you, know, you, know, you wrote about, well, uh, 
we have to look at some type of storage for uh, the leftovers. It, kind of uh, pottery. You know, I thought pottery really wasn't invented until uh, you know more recently, but you're saying that um, yeah, there's evidence that pottery may may have been utilized at dust cave much earlier than previously thought. Yeah, that's been one of the other, I guess, surprises, um, fun surprises that's emerged from this site. Um, it, it is a pre-ceramic site, so meaning that there, there is no pottery at the site. Um, this site is occupied till about 3600 uh, BC, roughly, and we don't see pottery for you know another millennia or so in the southeast. Um, but what we do have at this cave, which has really changed our thinking, is we have these, for lack of a better term, I'll just call them flat clay surfaces. Um, they're, they're, they're clay, um, they're burned, and they're pretty consistent in thickness, um, a little less than an inch probably thick. Um, and we find them all over the cave. And, and in the early years, we, we simply had no idea what they were. We Honestly, we thought they were just um, kind of a cemented sediment uh, just from the, the calcium carbonate-rich water percolating through the cave. Um, and so we didn't really think much of them. We kind of just excavated through it. Um, and then a field school student actually one year discovered textile impressions in it. And so we started looking much more closely at them. Wow. Thanks to, yeah, her very observant eyes, which nobody else had seen, um, she found them as it was coming through the water screen, and she just happened to be looking really carefully. Um, so we started looking at these much more carefully, and my colleague Sarah Sherwood and I have done some experimentation, and um, and she's done, uh, Sarah Sherwood has done a lot of work looking at these clay surfaces at other sites and realizing that these fired clay flat surfaces are at a number of other sites dating as early as the late Paleo-Indian in the southeast. And so we kind of argue that it's, it's an early ceramic technology. It's just flat instead of, you know, the, the stereotypical pot. Um, so I think that they were well aware of ceramic technology. Um, you know, if you think about it, these are hunter-gatherers, and they're moving fairly frequently, you know, as they're um, targeting, strategically targeting resources in different seasons. Um, so carrying heavy pots would have been not very useful, <laughs> um, not very efficient. Um, but the, the clay surfaces show that they certainly knew how to, to fire them. The bigger question then has become, what what are they doing with them? And I don't know that we <laughs> we have a good answer to that yet. Um, we've done a lot of really fun experiments. Um, we've tried using them as like griddles. Um, the 2002 field school students um, from Skidmore College um, and from um, Middle Tennessee State University, did some designed some fun projects where we, we tried to we tried to pop corn on them. We we tried to grill hmm. like meat. Um, the Skidmore College Field School um, had a fun project where we actually successfully steamed some catfish. Um, so it, it seems like there you can you know make a little fire on these 
surface, you know, you lay down the clay, you make a flat surface, you build a fire on it, um, you cook the fish in the fire, um, the clay hardens and your fish cooks. Um, so that's one hypothesis um, that they were, you know, for steaming or, um, you know, kind of a modified oven, so but to speak. It, it, it's almost like a hibachi, though. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> that's what our first experiment kind of tried to replicate. <laughs> it wasn't very successful, though. It, it, the meat would cook to, like, stick to the clay, and it would just get overcooked and rubbery. It, it didn't work very well. Oh, it's just really fascinating to go so far back in time, and you know, there, there's it, you discover that you know, there was almost an invention ten thousand years before what you know we're doing today. <laughs> I think it's just really amazing. Yeah, that's one of the things that I love about archaeology is you know, when you kind of see those human universals, you kind of doing the same kinds of things, mm-hmm. maybe in but the same kinds of things. Um, yeah, so we still have a lot of experimentation to do. Um, we did do um, some re- what we call residue analyses, and so um, a researcher up at, um, in Canada had looked at um, the, the clay surfaces to see what kind of food residues might be left on them. Um, so she was looking for things like fatty acids and cholesterol and mm-hmm. triglycerides. You know, there's things we worry about today in our in our own right. arteries. And she didn't find any cholesterol, so it doesn't seem like they were processing meat. Um, but she did find a lot of what she called um, high and medium chain fatty acids. And I have to admit, I don't know exactly what those are in a biological sense, but they're common to um, things like nuts and fish and um, shellfish. Um, and so I think future experiments, we need to maybe look at, you know, maybe these were used to parch the hickory nuts or maybe they were steaming shellfish because we have a, a lot of shellfish remains, um, a lot of gastropods and snails. And so it may be that they're related to, to those kinds of uh, foods. Okay. And there, there were also uh, a few burials that were discovered too. Uh, is there anything you can say about what they revealed about uh, the use of the cave or who, who the people were? Um, yeah, um, there is a large number of burials. Um, I'm forgetting the exact number off the top of my head. Um, they're, they're both male and female, although they're predominantly female. Um, and which is interesting. Um, it's not that there aren't any males buried there, but they are mostly uh, kind of a three-to-one ratio, um, women to men. So, oh, okay. which is interesting. You know, one of the reasons we've kind of interpreted the site as maybe a women's retreat or a women's nut processing location. Um, Makes sense. The 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 human remains are, are healthy. Um, the folks who have looked at them have said that these are it's a healthy population. Um, the average age um, on these, and you know, it's a probably a pretty small sample, but um, and there's a very large error range on it. Um, but you know, around 40 for women, it was much younger for men, so uh, that's interesting. Um, 
and there's uh, both adults and juveniles um, buried there. Um, there do seem to be a lot of burials kind of um, towards the beginning of the Middle Archaic, and it's been hypothesized that perhaps the use of the site changed briefly during that time period, um, and that instead of being kind of a base camp or a processing camp, it took on more of a became more of an ossuary site, more of a, a sacred, a little less secular kind of site. But then it seems to have fairly quickly gone back to nut processing. Um, so that's that's kind of an area of research that um, we haven't flushed out real well. Um, I, I think what the other burials that interest me, I think even more than the human burials, are the, the dog burials. And we have a few mm -hmm. of those um, um, I believe four, and they're paired with human burials, um, and they're you know they're fairly small dogs, um, but they're they're clearly intentionally buried. There's pits with them. Um, one of them that I was around when it was excavated um, seemed to have an associated um, projectile point with it, um, and they're you know they're kind of curled up, kind of in the, the fetal position, sort of for a dog. Um, but some of the specialists who have looked at those uh, remains, including Renee Walker, um, have identified um, arthritis in the spine. And so she's hypothesized that these would have been, um, I don't want to say they weren't pets because I think they were clearly loved um, because of the way they were buried, but um, they, they clearly were work animals as well. Um, and so, you uh -huh. know, they may have helped hunting, bringing back hunts. They, they may have been used to help bring back the loads of hickory nuts that would have been processed at that cave, um, you know, that would get heavy. So these dogs may have been very useful to, to both men and women um, in bringing back materials to the cave. So um, it's a, a really fun window uh, into kind of daily life to think about how these dogs would have been both helpers um, but also pets. Wow, that is interesting. Cool. I was glad, glad you had a chance to bring that kind of information into discussion. Really, really like that. So, um, let's see what what else can we get into um, with. Yeah, your work in a cave, you know, confined uh, space. Uh, you've also done work in an open air site as well. How, how do those settings uh, really differ? What what are you learning about the uh, you know, working in a cave, working out in a field? Um, are you able to use more, um, you know, kind of high-tech gadgets out out in the field, uh, meadow somewhere? Yeah, so my, my work's taking quite a switch since my dust cave days, um, and now that I'm at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, I've been working on 
much more recent stuff, um, Monongahela uh, cultural tradition, which is um, from about 1,000 to 1,500 A.D. So I kind of jumped about 10,000 years in my, my research. Um, but like you said, it's all open-air archaeology. And so I guess the first thing I, I would say is that the stratigraphy is a lot easier on a floodplain um, okay. than it is cave. So it's been easier, a little bit easier digging. Um, but, yeah, in, in terms of the gadgetry, um, you know, working in a cave is very tedious. It's a lot of excavating just with trowels, hand trowels. Um, you know, some of those micro-stratigraphic layers I mentioned are so thin that if you were using a shovel, you would go right through them and, and never even know they were there. Um, you would miss a lot of those features and all that amazing preservation. So, you know, it's really slow. It's in small test units with these trowels. Um, and at the Monongahela sites that I've been working at now, it's you know, you can get right in there with a shovel. You can through a lot more dirt um, a lot faster. Um, um, and also, you know, one thing that I love being able to use out at, say, the, the sites I'm working at now is something called um, ground-penetrating radar, which um, my colleague, Bill Chadwick, mm -hmm. is a specialist in. And so, you know, out in the field, um, you know, you have this equipment. It basically sends radio waves down into the ground. It, the waves hit things underground, bounce back, and we can see that reflection, you know. So if there's a house structure or a burial pit or something like that, it will reflect in the the output. Um, and so that's a really nice opportunity to do what we kind of, what we call low impact archaeology or minimally invasive archaeology. Um, you can uh. save a lot of time and money by kind of exploring what's underground and targeting where we want to excavate because we kind of have a sense of where things are before we even put a shovel in the ground. So that's a really wonderful technology that I've been able to take advantage of now that I'm, I'm up here working outside of caves. Oh, it, it, it's just really interesting to you know, do some compare contrast between the settings, and you know, I, you know, with your experience, I, I'm sure the listeners are learning a lot, getting a better feel for what you do. And with the um, uh, Squirrel Hill site, there is. No, I, I, I don't know if, uh, a, a return to uh, horticulture is at least being used more uh, prominently with maize. And you know, there's also – we went from 10, 11,000 years ago uh being inside a cave to in this field there's uh, a palisade around the village i thought uh, uh that was interesting where um and when we've had other guests on you know there it might have been some hamlets along the uh river during the hopewell times but uh where did the uh uh, palisades 
uh, come from around a village. Uh, well, at Squirrel Hill, we actually haven't identified the palisade yet. That's one of our goals for the field school this summer, to see if we can locate that. Um, in many cases, they don't necessarily seem to be um, defensive structures uh, so much as they are just kind of a social structure. Um, although later in time, they may have served more defensive purposes. Um, but yeah, they would have encompassed, you know, the the village area where they've had a number of houses, kind of circular houses in a fairly circular pattern with a kind of a, a plaza in the middle. Um, and so that's one of the things we're to find at um, Squirrel Hill. And, you know, that's so different from the cave work that I've been doing where it's a fairly small cave. Everybody's kind of clustered in the same space trying to do a number of activities in a small location. Um, at the Monongahela sites, you know, people much more spread out. And there's, you know, these differences in kind of domestic space versus communal public space. Um, and so we're we're trying to kind of figure out you know, we know we have houses at the site, um, but we know there's got to be a plaza. There's got to be you know, at least one stockade. And we suspect that the site grew over time. And so a lot of Monongahela sites have more than one stockade or palisade as, as they grew and, you know, hmm. the site expanded. Well, okay. And, you know, one of the features of your works and you know we do see it in um your student uh chris thompson's work it are these graphs and uh, charts um we, we we try not to do math on nightlight, but we'll make an exception <laughs> for you since, since you include in well as well as recommend to your uh, students, but it, it, they are really helpful to see uh, about. At what time you, you see these patterns emerge, and, and that, then they kind of start fizzling out with the fewer examples of artifacts found. It, it, it really does help. Um, how, how do you work on those kind of graphs and charts, and uh, you know, put those? into the document to really leave an impact because I I think that uh, they are helpful. Yeah, in terms of the radiocarbon dates? Oh, yeah, that, that or uh, you know, the number of, uh, you know, some kind of artifacts found or around, you know, uh, you know, 1,000 A.D. at one of the Monongahela sites. You know, how, um, how did, when do you know when to put those in there for maximum effect for your readers? They are helpful. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I guess we're we're always trying to answer questions about society is kind of you know coming and going and, and when kind of they hit, hit their peak, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've often used projectile point typologies as as kind of those indicators. Um, I, I think for for me as an archaeologist and many archaeologists now, I think we're obviously that will always be important um, and it can help help readers visualize kind of that rise and an ebb and flow of societies. Um, But I think it's also important to to keep in mind that there's other kinds of material cultures such as ceramics and and, and other things that also can tell that same story. Um, But of course, projectile points preserve so well. (laughs) So a little bit of a Mm -hmm. bias in the argument record towards those. So it's just something to keep in mind, you know, when we, we look at those kinds of graphs. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we, we get radiocarbon dates. We try to plot those along, you know, to see, make sure those dates are kind of going properly with the stratigraphy and matching the stratigraphy. And, you know, we want to see a nice correlation there. Um, and then mm-hmm. you can kind of, you know, look at the, the artifacts from those different time periods. And, you know, you kind of start to to, to build this typology of when things were more or less popular. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, Chris tried to do that on a very large scale, and it was an ambitious undertaking. Um, and, you know, and we need that kind of big picture research. Um, you know, a lot, some archaeologists work very specifically at individual sites trying to understand a specific site, and then other researchers are kind of the big picture folks, and, and they're going out and Kind of saying, okay, now if we look at 50 of these sites, what patterns do we see over a larger region right. and over a larger period? Um, and and I think that's kind of the future where archaeology is headed. Is you know we're always going to need to look at new sites, um, but I think a lot of it now is well, let's preserve a lot of what we have because we may have technologies in the future that will tell us much more, um, and let's try to synthesize some of this data and really pull together these big data sets and and look at things regionally. And um, and I, I think that's the direction a lot of research is going right now. Well, I, I've enjoyed reading your works and projects with which you've been associated. So uh, I'm very impressed. And they're, they're all very informative. Um, and like I said, said the you know, graphs r- really do make several pages of written information <laughs> very informative. With there, there, what? Yeah, you know, there's the graph that backs up everything. Yeah, you, know, you do have. You know, you are working there in the, you know, literally in the trenches as well as um, being involved in the creative aspect to make the data informative for the readers. Yeah, and I, I think that maybe we have a responsibility to to maybe do a better job at that even. I, I no, I I was listening to one of the archived episodes uh, with T.R. Kidder, and 
I'm kind of agreeing uh-huh. with him towards his interview, and he's talking about kind of academic writing, and it's terribly dull, and, <laughs> and there is a lot of that. You know, I think there's been a lot of folks now saying, you know, we really we need to kind of humanize this work, and we need to make it real and relate to people today, because you know, there's so many similarities between people today and people back then, and you know, have the same concerns and the same joys and um, interests. Um, so I think, like you said, you know, graphs can, picture's worth a thousand words, and sometimes a graph is too. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think there's more of a push lately um, for more kind of public archaeology, public outreach, and um, making the writing more accessible um, to people and, and not bogging, <laughs> bogging uh, interested people down in, in unnecessary detail, um, but still having data to support what we're saying. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I really like your approach as a a researcher author. I mean, it's, it, you communicate your points very well. Do Do you have any uh, uh, meetings coming up? I know, I know you have you know, put together lesson plans and uh, you know, do. You know, go, go over uh, you know, papers uh, you know, before you uh, tur- turn in for the night. But you know, do you have any uh, appearances coming up or uh, new publications besides your book? Uh, not since the pandemic, but um, my, several of my students will be publishing um, and presenting at the, the Society for Pennsylvania Archaeology. So a lot of the work coming out of the Squirrel Hill site um, we have a large number of graduate students, and, you know, we mentor them um, in their research. And so they'll be presenting that conference coming up in April, which is um, a really wonderful conference. Um, Pennsylvania has a, a wonderful network of professional and, and avocational archaeologists who work closely together. Um, and so this conference is kind of that joint venture um, between the two groups. Um, yeah, so that's the, the main one coming up. Um, you know, like I said, I have a lot of students doing doing research at School Hill, and and even a couple still pulling out um, materials from the the archives on on Dust Cave. So there's still a little bit of Dust Cave research happening as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, you're you know, with since you just mentioned the avocational archaeologists, uh, yeah, they are contributing a lot to this field as well. Yeah, quite a bit. Um, and, and Pennsylvania's, um, I'm sure some other states have wonderful avocational programs too, but um, Pennsylvania has been really lucky that, um, you know, a lot of colleagues that I have in the Society for Pennsylvania Archaeology have kind of made second careers out of archaeology. You know, they had their first career and always had a passion for archaeology and now you know, have spent a couple of decades learning how to excavate and running their own sites. Um, and, you know, and, and the conferences like the Society of Pennsylvania Archaeology and, and, you know, like I said, many states have these. Um, it's just a really good opportunity for professionals and avocationals to come together, share information. Um, and, again, it just, like we said earlier, kind of try to make it, make it as accessible as possible. Um, they publish um, the Pennsylvania Archaeologist Journal um, and a lot of the, the avocationals have published in that journal. 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, that's written in a much more accessible tone. It's It's got data, but it's also, you know, very readable. Um, it's so, not yeah, overwhelming. Well, right, exactly. And I think that that's one of the places I'm going to focus some of the, the Squirrel Hill research is, is getting it in that journal where it will reach a wide audience of people who are interested in it. Um, so that's kind of kind of in the plans for the next one to two years is, is kind of synthesizing what we know about the Squirrel Hill site um, and what we learned this summer um, as we expand our excavations and expand the, the ground penetrating radar um, and, and hopefully write that up in the next year or so. Okay. Well, um, is there anything else you want to uh, plug before we let you go for the evening? Uh, and I guess just uh, the Indiana University of Pennsylvania will be excavating at the Squirrel Hill site this summer. Um, it's near New Florence, Pennsylvania. So, you know, if there's any listeners who are nearby and, and want to experience archaeology, we're, we, we want and welcome visitors to the site um, and are going to be planning a public archaeology day. Um, so, you know, if anybody is interested, they're, they're more than welcome to get in touch with us. There you go. So, um, all right, well, Lauren, just want to thank you for being a guest um you're welcome to return anytime to get, give us some up, updates and i just want to thank you for you know bringing your experience to our listeners and that uh, they they love this kind of stuff and you, you presented some Great, great information tonight. So I, I, I just really want to thank you for such an informative discussion, making it easy to understand. It, it was really a, a lot of fun, and uh, you know, you're, you're welcome to come back when you have some new material to discuss. Oh, great! I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about Score Hill sometime down the road. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll have to do that. So, okay. Well, and then you have to get back to uh, uh, grading papers. And (laughs) thanks again for every everything you did for us tonight, Lauren. Uh, We will be in touch. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take take care. And yeah, thank you everyone for tuning in. And we will see everyone next week. Have have a great evening, everyone. Happy St. Patrick's Day.